Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME T-O-G-O to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the context of a CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kreviak. I'm the director of TMA's Education Center, and I produce the TMA Practice Well podcast, where we strive to provide CME and actionable quick tips that will help your practice thrive. This episode was recorded at TexMed 2023, TMA's annual conference. The weight of physician words can be monumental, driving medical decision-making by the patient and other decision-makers. Dr. Rezai, an internal medicine physician, also board-certified in palliative medicine, shares some of her experiences of having emotionally charged conversations with terminal patients and their families and offers techniques to help frame and navigate difficult conversations. Dr. Rezai graduated medical school in 2006 from the University of North Texas Health Science Center, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. In 2009, she completed her internal medicine residency at Plaza Medical Center of Fort Worth, now Medical City Fort Worth, and served as chief resident during her final year. She is also board certified in hospice palliative medicine as of 2013 and obtained her hospice medical director certification in 2020. Outside of her medical career, she loves all things tennis, Dallas sports, and spending time with her husband and two children. And now, Dr. Mo Rezai on Use Your Words Wisely, the impact of physician verbiage in conversations of goals of care. Welcome. appreciate y'all coming. My name is Mo Rezai. I'm an internal medicine physician. I'm also board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I'm the medical director for palliative care services at Medical City Fort Worth. And I'm also the 
palliative care physician at the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. And um, my tie to CMA is I'm also on the uh, Committee on Cancer. So um, I volunteer to present a talk on using your words wisely and just how your words as physicians matter so much when talking to patients and their families, especially in the realm of serious illness. And so I just thought I would kind of go into that because sometimes training is minimal whenever we go through med school and residency. Um, the objectives I want to achieve just describe some instances of either missed opportunities or just some times where, you know, tough conversations have either gone awry or they've just become really difficult when communicating with patients and families. Um, I have some tools to aid in better communication with patients and families and then discuss the impact of your word choices when you're talking with patients and, and your colleagues. So I think so. Here's a case presentation. This happened to me four years ago now. There was a hospitalist who consulted me to see an 86-year-old female. She was previously independent. She was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. She couldn't tolerate chemotherapy, so she was hospitalized. On day nine of the hospitalization, a couple of complications, community-acquired pneumonia, and then C. diff colitis were being treated. Her son, who's the power of attorney, is a family medicine doctor, not in Fort Worth, but he admitted, this was his quote, 30 years removed from ICU medicine. And we discussed her code status and that she would be a do not allow resuscitation for his mother's wish. The day before I was consulted, there was an episode of severe hypoxia, but the POA, the son, did not want BiPAP started. So I came in, started talking to him just to kind of get to know him and his mom and understand. And these were, this was his quote. He didn't want morphine involved because it would kill her by knocking down her respiratory drive, which hopefully you know that's not true, So especially if it's used correctly. So he didn't even realize that palliative medicine was a specialty. That We talked a little bit about that too. Um, but he ultimately he wanted her to be comfortable but still receive IV antibiotics for her pneumonia. But you see her white count was like way, way high, all from the CLL. During that conversation, I was able to educate him on, look, Morphine, we give in very small doses. We titrate up based on response. We're monitoring all the time, especially since she was in the ICU. This is how we're, this is my tool to help make sure that she's comfortable. So he agreed and he was very happy that it helped her make, make her comfortable. However, her respiratory status from the pneumonia did deteriorate and she ended up going to atrial fibrillation with RVR. So the hospitalist asked me, should we treat? And of course I, I said, well, she, just because she has a do not DNAR doesn't mean that we should forego treatment. So right now, yes, you know, if you need to order some kind of imaging, that's fine. But when she talked to the son, he said no. So then I, I went back in just to help the hospitalist out, just say, okay, what are your goals? What do you hope comes out of this, you know, this hospitalization? How can I help? I even brought up hospice, possibly inpatient hospice and treatment options. And um, these are the responses I got. You as a physician should always give the patient and family hope. We'll talk about that word later. By taking away IV antibiotics, you were destroying that. Without the IV the antibiotics, you were not treating her pneumonia. If you don't give her antibiotics, in my mind, that is unethical. And then the final one that really just, you know, I braced myself for this. If we as a family want her to get the IV antibiotics, then you will give her the antibiotics with the expletive in there. Um, he verbally acknowledged that his mother was going to die in the ICU, and sadly she did one hour after I left. I walked away feeling so beat up. It was devastating. I didn't know, you know where I went wrong when talking to him that he was so verbally combative. 
but you know, he was so appreciative to the palliative care team. Like he said, you know, thank you so much for all your time and being with us. And but I felt beat up and, and didn't go back in there to talk. So sometimes you can categorize these serious illness conversations as three types. So the what happened, you know, when I was trying to talk to him, I was trying to give him facts. And sometimes you can do that, but then when you're talking about these facts, sometimes instead of like where I was trying to say, okay, the IV antibiotics aren't going to help, I probably could have switched my thought process to tell me more. I was, I, I should have been more curious, should have inquired more about his thought process and why he thought the IV antibiotics were so necessary instead of just trying to battle him on this. The second type focus on feeling. You know, there are some emotions that sometimes we don't allow to surface, whether it's that fear of the patient's death, what are they going to think of me as the physician? Am I adequate? Um, that kind of goes more into the identity about self-esteem, self-image, even self-doubt. Like, what did I do wrong, you know, to allow this demise to happen when honestly there was no, nothing that I did wrong. But, but going back to the feelings, guilt, inadequacy, helplessness when trying to help these patients, sometimes that can come across that way. Even like emotion, on the opposite side, emotional disconnection, whenever, you know, it kind of depends on how the other person is, you know, if they're able to open up to you, sometimes you have to engage them and just build that relationship. And, and sadly, I only had one day to do it. And so there was this chasm of emotions that I couldn't cross. Sometimes even there's like a false cheerfulness, like, oh, everything's getting better. Everything's great. But really, you know, you have to tone that down. And then again, from the identity standpoint, how do we see ourselves as physicians when we are trying to take care of patients it can come about from these conversations? I like this quote, there's no such thing as a diplomatic hand grenade. I mean, if it's bad news, it's bad news. Some not so desired strategies, avoidance. I talk a lot with the residents at Medical City Fort Worth. There shouldn't be an elephant in the corner. There should be just what you're talking about is the status of the patient, what's going on. And yes, throw in some facts in there, but you also don't want to just dump everything on them. You know, like, okay, they have 170,000 white count and they've got C. diff and they've got this and they've got that. And here, what decisions do you want to make now? You know, that can be overwhelming. I actually just had a family conference that went an hour and a half on this poor young guy um, who's been in the hospital for, I guess, today would probably be 60 days. PD catheter infection led to subdural hematoma somehow. He's on a trach and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I went in there talking to the wife who was obviously distraught about everything. But at the end, she said that I, she didn't expect me to come out and say the, the status of her husband the way I did, but she appreciated it. So there's no avoidance, but there's not all this, like I said, just data dump on the patients to try to digest everything. And again, you know, sometimes the breaking bad news, the, how, how you fear the patient will feel not only about the news, but about you as a doctor. Well, why can't you fix my mom? Why can't you fix my husband? You know, is there somebody better than you can, that can do this, you know? And I will say all the time, you know, like, especially even that, that son on the first case, I think his reaction was totally expression of grief. I, I think it was a pre-grieving going on. Sometimes that comes across as anger, denial, of course, and before they even die. So how to break bad news? I think it's always great to find a comfortable setting. Like when I had that family conference, I asked, would you like to step out of the room and, you know, find like a conference room or someplace quiet where we can be away from the bells and the whistles of the, you know, the ICU machines. And, and they, they said, no, we'd rather be here. But you too want to be in a comfortable situation. You want to sit down at eye level with them. You don't want to tower over them and stand up because these, like I said, can be long conversations. And it really can make them more comfortable if you're sitting with them. Usually the first thing I ask is, what do you know? What, what do you know about what's going on with your loved one or with yourself? What do you understand about your disease process and what's going on in this hospitalization? And then 
you ask, what do you want to know? What, like, what else, what questions do you have? What do you not fully understand or have, you know, there's a question mark about what's going on. You want to use words that you understand, you know, they're not dummies, but you know, you want to make sure that they understand and they don't get lost in medical jargon. And you want to do it in little short spurts. Give them time to process the issues with dialysis or the issues with the chemotherapy. Give them little parts to understand. Some people think of silence as awkward and, you know, just try to fill it with words. But really, I think of it more as a compassionate silence. Just sit and bask in the silence and let the patient have that time to be able to, or the the family to have that time to be able to process what just was said to them. Respond to their feelings. How can I help? You know, how can I help you right now? What can I do to help you either understand or cope or whatever it is you need right now? What is it I can do? Sometimes I'll get them to summarize. And fortunately, the wife of that case, she did. She, she summarized it because she actually had some family members come in towards the end of our conversation. And she was able to verbalize in front of me what I just had told her. So, um, And there really weren't any other questions. But you just want to keep opening it up. Open it up. Lay out the plan. And that was the hard part. That's where she broke down emotionally because I gave her the options of, what life would look like if her husband were to continue on a trach and a peg and all this kind of stuff and all the potential complications and how most likely he will never get back to where he was before or focusing on comfort care. So that was the plan. But ultimately the the biggest plan I told her, I was like, you take your time to get your kids here. That was so important for her. And I said, don't worry about these other doctors. He's already been here this long. If you need two days to get your kids from out of town, that's the plan. And above all, I walked out telling her, we're here for you. That's what palliative care is. It's here to support you and your family. So if you have any other questions, let us know. I would even say maybe another good one is I asked about, you know, what was what was your husband like before this happened? You know, tell me more about him. Get to know him. And that way you can kind of pull out what would be important from a goals of care standpoint. Faith in a fair and just world. That was something else that came up in our family conference. The patient was actually a minister. And his wife, she talked about how godly he was. And one of the things she said was, you know, I have such huge faith in God, but I I don't know why, you know, like why, why? And so that can be part of the suffering too. Um, The relationships can be compromised and then just your core identity, like who you are. These are all the kinds of uh, suffering that somebody could endure. The little mnemonic about empathic response in the palliative care field, nurse. So you want to name the emotion, identify the emotion that's being presented you want to understand, acknowledge, or restate the emotion. Above all, respect for the patient. Something that she brought up was dignity for the patient, and I think that's, above all, so crucial. Providing the support and then exploring, exploring options, exploring timelines, exploring the emotions again. So Dr. Cassell, he's a bioethicist. He defines suffering as distress that occurs when integrity of a person is threatened. And that could be independence, Again, going back to these patients who are on ventilators long-term or can't move, have a stroke. You know, the independence is compromised. Bodily integrity. So, again, the holes, you know, the, the trachs, the pegs, all these things, the bed sores, everything. Coping. How do you cope with suffering? So, actions, behaviors, and thoughts used to manage stress or threat. So, suffering. And, you know, there have been studies that show that early palliative care involvement improves patients' use of active coping strategies, so like acceptance, positive framing, and then it provides a better quality of life and mood. And then usually the denial and self-blame, which aren't good coping strategies, those tend to cause a worse quality of life and mood in the patient family. 
a model of just where palliative care should come into play. Whenever somebody comes down with a chronic, potentially life-limiting illness, this is where a palliative care should initiate. So whether somebody's trying to go through towards cure or control of disease, that's where palliative care can come in and assist with management of the symptoms and provide the supportive care until they either achieve survivorship or hospice is needed. So I'll switch gears to more of that advanced care planning and serious illness conversation, which is kind of the term that we tend to use more of instead of the ACP. But um, this is exploring values and goals of patients and families to prepare them for the future, to prepare them for future medical decisions. And it's, it's all designed to be consistent with their preferences. But there's a reluctance to discuss, and there's lots of different reasons why, you know, for physicians to have a tough time talking about it. Sometimes you have to face your own feelings about your own mortality, and, you know, and sometimes that's tough, especially if you have your own offspring, you're married, and you're healthy, but then you know that your end's going to come at some time, too, so then you're having to talk about this with another family, and it's really tough to, you know, think about how you would address it. Again, this word hope, truth kills hope, Um, you know, there's just this again, avoidance of wanting to cause emotional pain for patients and families talking about these bad things, these serious illnesses. Again, I go back to that feeling of being blamed or feeling guilty about even talking about compassionate withdrawal from life support or something like that. Sometimes when patients come in, you know, the doctors, maybe they've known them for a while. You know, I'll say like transplant patients are probably like a good example where the doctors, their team, they assume they know the patient's wishes. When that can change any time, you know, based on their situation right then. You know, and I think this is, a, this is a big thing, too. We feel powerless to prevent death. We as doctors train to cure and to control symptoms, but unless something else comes down, you know, in technology, I mean, none of us can prevent death. And sometimes there's even, like, some grieving that may be going on of our own losses and then considering unrecognized compassion fatigue. That's a, another reluctance to discuss. And then the training, like I said, I think the training needs to be beefed up, you know, from medical school to residency to train these upcoming doctors to be able to have these conversations is so crucial. But the resultant delay in having these conversations leads to loss of opportunity to make decisions on a limited time basis. So, again, going back to my conference, I mean, like I said, day 57, I was called in to come and, you know, talk the talk with the patient, the family, and it's like, now they're on this time crunch, you know, and there's a lot of pressure there. So you want to assess the patient's understanding of their illness or the family's understanding. Create a shared model of what the future may hold. You want to be very specific. Lay it out for them. And you want to draw out of them what the goals and values are of the patient. But you want to try to recommend the medical care that aligns with the patient's preferences. So serious illness conversations, um, the setup is important. Again, finding that comfortable place environment. You want it quiet. You want lots of focus on you and to be able to allow the family and the patient to have their space to talk. Again, you want to assess their understanding, how much do they understand already and how much do they need to know or want to know beyond that. Sharing, understanding of where things are with the illness. That's when you share your information of what you know with them. You don't sugarcoat it. You don't use euphemisms, which we'll go into later. You just lay it out there for them in a compassionate way. And then you explore the goals, the fears, the worries. What's your source of strength? What are the abilities? And what are they willing to go through? Sometimes I ask that question. I'm like, okay, if your loved one could pop awake right now and has 15 minutes to talk to us, what would they tell us that they would want to do? What are they willing to go through to 
survive and exist? Or what are they willing to go to 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 be able to see their kid graduate in May or something like that? So that's where the exploration happens. And then in the close, again, recommendations are given, but above all the support is, just has to be reiterated for patients and families so they know they're not going through this alone. Um, how advanced care planning and serious illness conversation overlap both of them involve, you know, serious acute illnesses or decompensating chronic illnesses. Sometimes on the ACP side, they're a little bit more stable or healthy. But above all, it's about understanding values, goals, preferences regarding proximal future care, selection of a surrogate decision maker, the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. But again, on, on the serious illness communication, that tends to go more towards understanding values, goals, preferences in the moment of their care. And it's usually clinician-led versus like the ACP. This is all patient and surrogate-led discussion to determine, okay, do you have a POA? Do you have a directive to physicians? That kind of thing. So um, this was a serious illness care program. There was a four-year um, uh, randomized controlled trial of patients with cancer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where the intervention was clinical training for staff in giving serious illness conversations and addressing systemic changes for common barriers. The control was just the usual care, and the results were people in the uh, serious illness conversation program accomplished the goal to provide more, better, and earlier conversations. So 96% of the intervention group, they had documented discussions, and they did it two and a half months on average earlier than the control group which led to a greater focus of values, goals, prognoses, illnesses, illness understanding, life-sustaining treatment preferences. And there was less anxiety and depression even 24 weeks out. So bringing this up earlier rather than right before somebody dies is so much better for so many reasons. In 2018, there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed in early meetings in the medical ICUs uh, were associated with improved patient and family outcomes. But again, you know, early meetings don't always happen. And, you know, a lot of times the residents aren't prepared, especially if they don't have exposure to palliative care, either rotations or attendings at their hospital. So how to improve resident preparedness. I was just in Montreal for the assembly, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine this year. And there was this a research study that came out of Northwestern where there were 160 medical trainee participants. They went underwent hour-long workshops covering various topics like how to evaluate decision-making capacity, identification of surrogate decision-makers, how to structure a goals of care conversation, planning, preparing for, and leading a meeting, tending to emotions with empathy, eliciting values and preferences, making recommendations, and encouraging substituted judgment. And the pre- and post-comparison training attitudes, I think, was pretty impressive. So they went from 34% pre-training to 83% agreed or strongly agreed that they had received formal training. It doubled in percentage that they were confident in being able to lead a family meeting in the ICU. Again, close to doubling or tripling, correctly determining conditions required to determine decision-making capacity, and then um, threefold increase in correctly identifying priority order for surrogate decision-making for state law. There was an increase in inclusion of multiple disciplines in the meeting, so chaplains, nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, and then they were confident in their skills. The confidence, experience, and the self-assessed competence doesn't necessarily equal skills, so they have to be provided these tools is, is the point. Okay, word choices. So um, euphemisms or oxymorons, these are all things that should be avoided. Mild or indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or blunt when referring. So saying that 
someone is gone or no longer with us. You know, we should really avoid those words. I was listening to a talk at the assembly and this nurse practitioner had to call a patient's wife who had just expired on hospice. And she used the word gone and, and the wife said, well, where is he? And then she said, oh, well, he's no longer with us. And she said, well, what does that mean? And then finally she said, she, so she had to say it three times. Finally, she said the word died. And then the wife, you know, she finally understood. So that's why it's better to be clear with your speech um, and avoid these euphemisms. Synonyms, you know, I just use the word expired. Um, to lay people, they're probably going to think more of that as like a food term, you know, as something that's expired. So really, you know, maybe try to avoid those kinds of things, even though we, we talk about expirations of patients. You want to use a word that they understand, which is death and dying. Metaphors, figure of speech that describes an object or action in a way that isn't literally true. So somebody being called home, you know, you know, really should avoid that. And then how we, you know, hopefully we'll use these in front of patients and families, but the, the train wreck term, you know, we, we know that, yeah, we understand what train wreck means when it comes to patients, but um, you certainly want to avoid that when you're trying to talk to people. You know, this is an interesting one. I had a patient in my office whose husband, he had lots of health problems that his wife, she took such good care of him for so, so long, but the moment he died, she came and saw me like maybe a few days later and she confided in me that she was so relieved. She was so relieved that she didn't have to endure that burden anymore of taking care of him. And she felt guilty for saying that. And I told her, that's okay. That's okay. I know you loved your husband, but that was tough. Those last few years of his illness, all of his illnesses, you're okay to say that. And she, she was very thankful that she had a safe space to speak that. But but yeah, and then sometimes we also make those assumptions about, you know, if a man's sitting in there with a wife and, you know, we think they're married, but really they're brother or sister or something like that. So we should be careful about talking about loved ones. Using this term, this phrase, nothing more we can do, especially like cancer patients, I think it really trivializes what we can do from a comfort and palliative care standpoint. So, you know, when they say, well, my doctor says there's nothing more we can do, I say, well, there is more that we can do. We can make sure that you have the best quality of life for however long you've got. And that means we're going to work to control your symptoms. So we're going to make sure that you are functional until that time comes where you're not. I load the term of going on palliative. You know, anyone who ever receives a diagnosis that's chronic, it's potentially life-limiting, and they've got symptoms that are inducing that suffering, they are entitled to palliative care. They are entitled to it. And that doesn't mean they forego treatment. That doesn't mean they forego hospitalizations. That means... What they accept is that they don't have to suffer at the hand of their treatment. So even the ASCO in 2016 made a guideline that within eight weeks of any kind of advanced stage cancer, they, ha they, they recommend palliative care consultation. That's taking time to make that, you know, enforced, but, I mean, it's a work in progress. Um, I, I tried to twist that into avoiding using it as a noun, like you're taking away my hope. How could you take away my hope? You know, use it as, as a verb. Use it as a well, I hope that you don't suffer. I hope that you get to do this. I hope that we can achieve whatever your goals are. And then there was a great article out of NPR earlier this year about using this verbiage of battles and fighting. I just had a patient in my palliative care clinic at the center. She's, I think, in her 20s or 30s. She's got cervical cancer, and she's seeing us for symptom management. And she had her mother died from metastatic colon cancer within the year. And her words were, I'm fighting this cancer because my mom lost her fight. 
And I stopped her right there in her tracks. I was like, I understand where you're coming from, but I want you to take that terminology out of your head. Your mom didn't lose. She's not a loser. The cancer took over her body and it took her life. But I always tell patients, don't ever question somebody's ability, their, their spirit to fight. That's always going to be there when they, even when they take their last breath. But I even sent the article to all the oncologists. I was like, please, guys, please just stop with the, the battles and the fighting. And, you know, I know they make T-shirts and all this kind of stuff of it, but it, it makes it so hard to come to grips with this is likely going to take somebody's life. It just, it is what it is until we get a cure. It is what it is. So avoid those terms of battles and fighting. And then positive affirmations regarding one body system while the bigger picture of health status is declining. So this is the quintessential, oh, your mom's heart echo shows, you know, ejection fractions, 60%, but she's on a ventilator and she's getting CRRT and she's got infections and she's not doing well. Or yeah, creatinine is down to two, but everything else is circling the toilet. So, so I just always caution. And I mean, that's what specialists there, you know, they're going to focus on their kidneys. They're going to focus on their heart. They're going to focus on their lungs. It's not necessarily their job to look at the bigger picture, but that's where the hospitalists and where palliative care, we come in to help out with that. Um, and above all, be honest. I mean, most of the times they want to hear the truth, even if it's tough to say it and it's tough to digest it. Just like that family conference. She, she straight up said, I didn't know you were going to tell me about this whole comfort care thing and withdraw compassionate withdrawal and stuff, but she appreciated hearing it. She heard it. You know, I think it helped her understand the gravity of his illness and how he's really not going to get any better. But you want to balance that reality between, you know, between reality and empathy. And you want to allow, you want to make it feel like there's a collaboration that we are working together with you. Because before I came in and talked to her, she straight up said, this doctor, I don't know who it was, but came in and said, this is what's going to happen if you do this, you know, and just, just kind of laid it out like as a mandate instead of these are the options. This is what life would li look like in both scenarios. So that's that. Oh, this is a um, quote out of House of God. This is hanging in my office. And yet, in spite all our doubt, we can give something not to cure. No, what sustains us is when we find a way to be compassionate, to love. And the most loving thing we can do is be with a patient. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rezai. To our listeners, we hope you found this episode valuable and take away techniques that you're able to incorporate into your conversations with your patients. To claim CME for this episode, just click on Claim CME in the episode description and follow the instructions provided. Remember to like and follow TMA Practice Well to receive every episode. Until next time, stay well. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today.